Yeah. I'm Judy. I'm a very grateful alcoholic. God Almighty, it's great to be here, and it's great to see so many of you that I've known for so many years. It's just wonderful. Clarkston, God bless you. My hat is off to you. Clarkston is a wonderful group. Clarkston has always been a wonderful group. I remember that little house with no air and the, the little rooms. We went there. Back when, when uh, in the old days, you're going to hear a lot of that tonight, so just get used to it. Um, we used to do that. We used to go across town to support one another's meetings and to help them grow. And uh, Clarkston has been a, a great, great attribute and a great example of the works of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I have to say, because she is one of my favorites, that um, I have always admired Gay. Um, Gay has always been somebody that's been in there and been working for Alcoholics Anonymous. She never asked for any praises. So she, she just did it. And so you have my utmost respect and love for what you've done for the fellowship in general. I appreciate you. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. And I'm going to try to get the what we used to be like over with pretty quick. Um, so we'll get right to the point. I drank an awful lot in a short period of time. Uh, I was 23 when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. 59. Save you some time. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I stayed. But in order for those of you who may be new to Alcoholics Anonymous, you need to understand what I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous and what I gave Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, and said, fix me. Okay. So we're going to go briefly into the whole deal of how I got here. My stepfather was the alcoholic in my home. My stepfather was a Jekyll Hyde alcoholic. Now, there's going to be some things about my story that some of you may find distasteful, and I'm sorry if that's true, if you find it distasteful, but it is my story. I don't clean up my story, so if my being indelicate disturbs you, you may want to leave now. Okay. Because I don't clean it up, you see, here, and here's the reason why. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous for six and a half years waiting to hear my story. Okay, and when I finally did hear it, I promised myself no woman in an audience I was in front of was ever going to wait six and a half years to hear her story. So I don't clean up my story. All right, and I know that some of us get into Alcoholics Anonymous and we kind of feel like, well, I got it all together now and I'm wearing nice clothes, you know, and I'm bathing on a regular basis and I don't want people to know where I came from. Okay? Well, you're going to hear where I came from. And whether, because there's going to be somebody out there who needs to hear where I came from. Okay, because I know the relief that I felt. I know what I felt when I heard my story, and what I heard was, you can get sober too, and you can stay sober too. That's what I heard. I didn't hear all the bad stuff. I heard that she stayed sober anyhow. You know, one of my jobs when I do this in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the things that I always try and do is make sure that I'll screw up your drinking if you ever try it again. Okay. My job is to let you know you can go through anything in Alcoholics Anonymous and stay sober. You don't have to do it gracefully, folks. You just got to do it. You don't have to be the epitome of serenity. You just got to do it. You just don't drink. Some days, that's all you're going to have to hold on to is you just don't drink. Okay? And those days, it'll have to be enough. It'll just have to be enough. So anyway, my stepfather had an awful temper. He was an ex-DI in the Marines, so that kind of tells you. And uh, whenever he got upset and he got drunk, I got beat. And then uh, as time went on and I got a little bit older, there was um, a lot of sexual abuse involved. So from the time I was nine till the time I was 16, I was beaten up or sexually abused, just depending on how drunk he was. And that's kind of where my life was. So you have to know that I had to have something to get me through that. You see, now, I drank, I took my first drink at a very young age, and I'm thinking it was around 10 years old, somewhere thereabouts, because, as I said, the abuse started at 9. My story is not uncommon, by the way. Children that are abused very often turn to alcoholism. It's nothing unusual, okay? And that's what I did, and I believed today, and I believed it back then. Had it not been for the drug alcohol, I probably would have killed myself before I hit 16, because I just simply couldn't deal with what was going on in my life. 
And not only could I not deal with what was going on in my life, couldn't deal with what was going on out there. Uh, it, because the 60s, I was a child of the 60s. You all know something about that. And uh, not much because most of us don't remember much of it. But <laughs> I, It cracks me up when I hear people talk about drugs today like we never did those in the 60s, you know. <laughs> My God, all you have to do is look at the clothes we wore. You know we had to be on something. <laughs> It's a bad time in our country. There was a lot of things going on. There were a lot of race riots and terrible, horrible, awful things that were just hard to deal with. The Vietnam War was a terrible, horrible, awful thing. And I couldn't deal with that, you know. And I couldn't deal with the way the guys were being treated when they came home from that war. You know, I, couldn't, I just couldn't deal with anything. And so I drank. And when I left home, I continued to drink. Of course I did. You know, and my mother was around to be sure, but you know how cunning we are as alcoholics. And I've been buying liquor for myself since I was old enough to drive. Nobody ever asked me for ID. I'd pull up. They used to have drive-through windows. I don't know if they still do or not. I've been sober so long. I don't know. But drive-through windows, and you'd go in, you'd lay your money on that little shelf there and tell them what you wanted, and they never asked you for ID or nothing, and they'd pop that bottle in that brown bag, and I'm out of there like a shot. You know, I didn't have any trouble finding anything to drink. And so I'd come home a lot of nights a little high, and uh, there'd be those nights where I'd steal whatever mom and my stepfather had in the house because I had to keep that buzz going. And I don't know how I got out of high school, but I did, and I left home and got my own place in Buckhead, and that was the last place I needed to be with the way I was drinking. And uh, got into a lot of trouble. And, and at about 16, uh, my stepfather lit into me one night, and you know, something hit me that I just didn't have to take it anymore, and I didn't, and I came up off of that floor, and I cold-cocked him. And I knocked him down threw him out about three feet before he hit the ground and and I remember standing there and looking down at him for a change and I thought damn that felt good you know uh, and I, I was really addicted to fighting and that happens too when you live that kind of life you do what you have to do to survive and that became habit so I was not the little lady who went in and bought her bottle and went home and quietly drank and cried I was the one who went up to the corner bar and started a fight you know, and I'd start a fight with you, and the bigger you were, the more I could fight you. you know, and I'd come home, and you, rarely did I come home alone. Now, some of the, you may not have done this, but I did it. Um, and and uh, I know of a couple women besides myself in AA that did it. Um, I would actually go to a bar and pick a guy up and bring him home. Uh, Never knew his name, really didn't much care, you know. It, just, uh, it was just the way my life was. And just, for, just because I just didn't want to go home alone. So whoever was there, you know, and looked good, and of course the drunker you get, the better they all look, you know, <laughs> would come home and spend the night with me. And, and unfortunately, I would have those guys periodically that would have some feeling for me. And, uh, and, and want to save me, and oh God, they were the worst. Uh, and so it was, and then there'd be those that I just didn't get along with, and I'd wake up in the morning, and, and I'd have that black eye one more time, and I'd have that cut lip one more time, and I wouldn't remember how it started, and I wouldn't remember where he went, and I, I wouldn't remember any of it. And, and then I'd go through that whole thing in my mind that every alcoholic goes through is, you know, why did you do this again? You know better, why did you do this again? You knew what was going to happen when you picked up that drink, why did you do it again? And I couldn't answer my own insanity, people, I just couldn't answer it. And so I did what I, I had to do in order to survive. I went back and I picked up that bottle again. And of course the jobs were getting harder and harder to keep. And uh, because my temperament was so bad and you never knew when I was going to just blow something out that was just horrible. And um, by this time now I'm 21 and I went to to work in the bar and restaurant business, which is right where I needed to be. And so I could stay drunk and work too, and that's pretty much what I did. Physically, I was starting to fall apart. And so uh, I wasn't showing up to work like you need to, you know, like every day. I was showing up maybe once every three days, just enough to put the fire out as far as the bills. And uh, that wasn't working out, and I had met some people in the bar and restaurant business. And the long and short of that was is that I couldn't work anymore, so I went to work as a hooker in downtown Atlanta because that's what I had to do. 
and I worked as a whore not long uh, because I, I physically, you got to be able to walk in that profession, and I wasn't doing real good with that. <laughs> you know, it doesn't require much of you, but being upright till you get there is part of it. And. Um, <laughs> And I couldn't do that, you see, uh, because I couldn't. I just simply couldn't stay sober, and I couldn't get the act together enough to even get up and get dressed and go do those things that I had to do. I, I couldn't put the face on anymore because I had the shakes so bad, you know. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I was just so sick. I was just so sick. And uh, you know, there's a lot of us that we get into Alcoholics Anonymous, and as I said earlier, we clean up so much we don't want anybody to know that. And that's the part of my story. Being a whore was part of my story that I never heard a woman in AA share. I never heard it. Now, I know that the woman that I heard it when I was six and a half years sober, I have since learned she and I are not, are not the only two hookers in Alcoholics Anonymous. But... <laughs> no. Um, uh, not to be callous, but some women stayed married to the same guy that they hated and it really is the same thing, gals. Wow. I find that my biggest critics about that and about my bringing it up from the podium are either those who didn't have sense to sell it or those who had to pay for it. So. And I'm going to tell you something, I really, and I suppose it would be nice and spiritual and AA-like of me to say, you know, I really regret that, but I don't. I really don't. Because, and here's why. I did what I had to do. Okay? I did what I had to do. And any of us, when you're pushed for a drink or whatever, you do what you got to do to get what you got to get. You know? And that's what I had to do. So I'm not ashamed of it. And now that I'm approaching 60, I'm damn near proud of it. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> You know what I mean, ladies. It don't look like it used to when we were 25. None of it, you know. And I'm going to tell you something, guys. Don't you be laughing at us. Now, y'all don't look like you did when you were 25 either. And isn't it grand that we can laugh about it? Isn't it grand that we can smile about it? Isn't it grand to say, you know what, that's okay. Because by God, I made it to 60, and there were a lot of folks saying she ain't going to see 25. So I may, I got, July 27th, I'll be 60. Mm-hmm. I still can't believe it. So anyway, I went to a mental hospital because I couldn't do that anymore, so I figured I'd let the state support me, and my mother, God love her, was real concerned about me. And she told me I needed to go somewhere and do something about my nerves. And, um, and because I was out of cash and I couldn't work and I really was physically sick, I went and uh, signed into a, a mental hospital. And uh, I stayed there for six months inpatient. And, uh, and I was diagnosed with suicidal homicidal. Because uh, back then, in 1971 now, 23-year-old uh, uh, women weren't alcoholics. And with my background, with my stepfather, which the shrinks knew about and whatnot, that just seemed to be the right thing. And being that I fought a lot and I always wanted to hurt somebody, uh, that was the diagnosis they slapped on me. And so that kind of tells you what I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. After about six months on that, at that place, I ran a con and I got out of there. I told the, the, my doctor I had to go home and get my winter clothes because it was going from summer into fall and it was getting cool. And, and yeah, and... Um, so he said, uh, well, okay, but it, I was kind of on restriction because I had thrown a soft drink at a patient or something. I don't know. But anyway, I couldn't be gone all day. I could only have a three-hour pass. And that was, in, uh, that was in 1972. As a matter of fact, I'm still out on that three-hour pass. So, <laughs> And you all knew that was coming. You knew I wasn't going to go back. You know, I had a man waiting for me, and he had a case of Miller High Life, which was my absolute love of beer. And and uh, and two quarts of uh, black velvet. <laughs> oh God! And I don't know. Fourteen days went by before I even came down to touch base. You know. Um, and I came to where I used to come to quite often in some flea bag hotel. You know. I, 
that's where I came to a lot, and not knowing how I got there, not knowing how I'm going to get home. Uh, by this time, of course, I didn't have a home. I was crashing at mom's when they let me out on a pass because I didn't have a place to stay. And uh, situations got worse, and finally there was one person who took me in, and I got drunk at her place and caused a bunch of trouble, and she was getting ready to throw me out, and and uh, and I told her I'd, I, I'd go to AA um, because this was winter. This was December the 18th. It was cold. And uh, and I knew that if I got out there on those streets then, there was no place for me to go because, you see, my mother had thrown me out. That's why I was staying with my cousin. Uh, my mother told me I wasn't welcome in her home anymore. I, I'd done the last I could do there, and uh, she didn't want me back. I'll never forget that look on my mother's face. I'll never forget it as long as I live. been sober a long time. I could still see that look in my mother's eye when she told me to get the hell out of her house. I was no longer welcome there. And, of course, in my arrogance... And in my youth and in the alcoholic sick that you're in, you get mad at them because it's their fault. It's her fault. If she'd have done something, I wouldn't be in this mess. If she'd have gotten rid of that idiot that she was married to, I wouldn't be in this mess. I know it's her fault. And so I stormed off, and I'll never forget the pain in that woman's face. The best thing she ever did for me. Hands down, the best thing she ever did. So I went to my first AA meeting, people. And then walks up. They used to 12-step in pairs back then. A man and a woman walked in to take me to my first meeting. Guy looked pretty good to me. <laughs> but the female was Rebecca Sunnybrook Farm, if I ever saw one. And I didn't know, man, if I wanted to go to this thing or not. And I was sick and I was shaking. And I remember getting in that first meeting and they gave me a half a cup of coffee. And I remember they went around, it was a discussion meeting. And they went around and they talked, and I remember the laughter, as we all remember about our first meeting. It's always the laughter. It's always the look in the people's eyes. It's always the sparkle that they got there. That's what we remember. You know, and I remember they seemed to like one another from where I was sitting. It looked like it to me. And and I thought, well, I'll try this thing. And the guy that 12-stepped me, his name was Buddy. He's gone now, but he asked me if I had any questions. Was there anything I wanted to know about Alcoholics Anonymous? And I told him, no, no, I just don't want to get drunk anymore. I am sick to death of being drunk. And I really was. And I was 23 years old, and I was 85. Do you know what I'm saying? I had fought a war, and I just kept fighting that war, and I was worn out to the very core of my soul. I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't wake up anymore in a flea bag hotel. I couldn't wake up and realize it had been another 14 days since I'd bathed. I couldn't wake up and realize that my place was a mess. I wouldn't let an animal live the way that I used to live. I couldn't wake up like that anymore. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't. I couldn't wake up with all the guilt and the remorse and those looks from the people who loved me. You know, I couldn't wake up anymore and see those fine people on the streets of Atlanta look down at me like the trash that I was. I couldn't handle it anymore. I just didn't want anymore. I didn't want anymore. And since that night, December the 18th, 1972, I haven't had another drink. Haven't had another drink. However, when I came into AA, I wasn't exactly open-minded. I wasn't exactly willing. Uh, and I, I was really very quiet for a while because I used to do a lot of sizing up. I used to look at you all and try and figure out, you know, um, I don't know about these folks. You know, they're going to hit me up for money pretty soon. What am I going to do? I haven't got any insurance. You know, these people are going to charge me something. And they never charged me anything. And Buddy told me one time when I went to him and I talked to him, I said, you know, I hadn't got any insurance. You know that. He said, we don't charge anything. He said, all you have to do is when you get sober, you need to do what we did for you. You need to go and pick up a drunk and bring him to a meeting. And I agreed to that. Well, sure. How's he going to know if I don't go, right? I had no intentions of doing that. But I agreed to it. You know, I agreed to it. And I started, and my cousin let me stay with her because I was now not drinking. And it wasn't easy. My first, you know... And please don't say that I'm against rehab centers because I'm not. But there is something to be said for drying out on the floor in your apartment. 
There is something to be said for that. You know, it, it, and it, it, there wasn't any easy. There wasn't an easy. Thank God it hadn't been on, I hadn't been on a long, long drunk because it, I had tried to sober a little bit before I got to AA, but it didn't work, obviously. It, but that kind of fear that overtakes you, and my cousin was in there. She'd gone back up north to celebrate Christmas with her family, and so I was in the apartment alone. And I was thinking, you know what, man, I'm, I'd already had little creatures coming out of the closet, so I knew what that was about. But I didn't know physically how I was going to do because I'd already had seizures as well. So, I mean, I knew what I was in for, kind of. And I, I didn't eat for three days. I smoked one cigarette after another and drank Pepsi-Cola. It, it didn't matter to me if it was warm, cold. I just drank Pepsi and, until the, about the third day. And then I was able to eat a little something. I was one sick puppy. I think my youth was probably my saving grace. Had I been any older, I probably would have died. Really, I believe that. Started going to meetings. I was going to meetings on the nice side of town. And obviously I didn't fit on the nice side of town anymore. I was raised on the nice side of town, but I didn't live in the nice side of town. I hadn't lived in the nice side of town for a while. And I had lived in, and, and while well, my motor dress was different, my motor talking was different and, than what they used to be. And so these sweet ladies, and they were ladies and they were sweet, I don't mean that sarcastically at all, suggested I might like to go to the Atlanta Biscayne Room. <laughs> because I really wasn't quite fitting in with their group and they were being nice and I'll tell you what that's probably what that was one of the nicest things they did because that's exactly where I belonged I walked into that room uh, once they told me how to get there and I walked into that room and I started meeting people that were like me I started meeting people who had been out there who had done the things that I had done who had seen the things that I had seen and who understood what I was up against you know and they also understood me there were two guys in that room, uh, one was Dad, one was Big Jim, and they both took me under their wings, and, and they were my sponsors. And I hear a lot of people say men should sponsor men, women should sponsor women, maybe, maybe so, but I, don't, I just don't think there was a woman that wanted anything to do with me. I just don't, I don't know. But, but I do know this, that, that these two guys, one had eight years and one had 12 years, and I'll never forget them, because they never once had anything in mind with me other than my getting sober. I will never forget that. That's all they wanted was my sobriety they wanted me to get sober and I believe that and I owe my life to those two men I absolutely owe my life to them and they would teach me those things about how to live sober I came into the room one day and I wanted to fight this one girl and um, dad knew that and he pulled me aside and he told me that I would have to quit living like a drunk because I told him I was going to take her outside and get a few things straight you know and he told me that he told me that if I wanted so I couldn't live like a drunk and expect sobriety. Huh? You can't live like a drunk and expect sobriety. Now, I'll tell you what happens a lot to us in AA, especially when we're new, like within the first five years. We come in and we start working the program. We start feeling good. We start looking good. We got the job. We got the family. Everything's going good. All right, but up here, we're still thinking like a drunk. All right, when we leave our AA club room, when we leave our AA home group, we go right back out and practice business just like we did when we were drinking. Just like we did when we... We still lie to our spouse. We still lie to our families. We still mistreat our children. And then we wonder and sit back in utter amazement when we pick up the drink again. You can't do it. You cannot live like a drunk and stay sober. You have got to change. And you change everything. It's not a matter of what do I change. You change it all. You change it all. It is not easy. For me, the first thing I started with was my mouth. My mouth would turn the air blue when I talked in a meeting. It was, you know, and I went for the throat, man. If I had a resentment, I wasn't going to be just nice or subtle about it. I went for the throat. I wanted to chew you up and spit you out. That's the way I was. I had to learn how to talk. My sponsors would take me out in public places to teach me how to behave. And my sponsor, Jim in particular, was so good at it, he never had to say a word. He just gave me the sponsor look. You know, that look that says, you're screwing up, kid. Watch your mouth. You're talking too loud. It, it was just that look. I never had any money when I first got sober. I can't tell you how many times they bought me a meal. I can't tell you. They'd take me out, teach me how to behave in public teach me about my language. When I knew I started to change, I went out and I came up with, well, I got, 
Well, I got married, is what I did. <laughs> Three months sobriety, I got married. Alcoholics Anonymous is the easiest place in the world to find a husband. Bunch of sick women looking for a bunch of sick men. It really works out, you know. My spouse had four months. And it was just a disaster. The marriage was a disaster from the very beginning. We moved up to Hiawassee. I had no business in Hiawassee. I didn't know how to behave in a small country town, you know. And I still got that mouth, and I'm wearing those hip-hugger jeans, you know, and uh, no undergarments. And I'm walking the streets of Hiawassee, Georgia. You know how that... Now, when I moved up there, I didn't realize that meetings were going to be so difficult, okay? I didn't realize that. So I had to start doing, I had to start reading the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we were broke. And I'm talking about the broke kind of thing that if I spend $2 to go to a meeting, that means we don't eat tonight. That kind of broke. Okay, so I did the best I could with what we had to work with, but meetings became, came to me out of a book. And I started reading because my sponsors had told me that I had to find a God. They didn't make it optional back then, you know. They told me I had to find a God. They told me that it was in the book that there will come a time in my life when my only means of defense has got to come from a higher power. And then he said, now what do you think is going to happen if you don't have God? If you have no means of defense, what do you think is going to happen? You know, and of course I'm going to get drunk. My sponsor was my sponsors were not one that sat and listened to whining. They didn't listen to me whine. I remember I went to Jim one time and I was spewing out all this garbage, and he said, "You need to sit down and take a four step." I don't want to take a four step. Four step's not going to help me with this. I am not taking a four step. And he said, "Then get drunk." Oh, how crude is that? But it was right. It was right on point. It was right where it should have been. You know, it wasn't this, well, how does that make you feel, Judy? <laughs> wasn't any of that. Sometimes I listen to some of the stuff I hear. What is that? Anyway, sometimes I listen to some of the stuff I hear in meetings, and, and I, I don't know where this came from. I just don't know where this came from. You know, it, it, there's, it, there's no big mystery here, people. There's 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not a science project. It, it, it's nothing you have to dig at it forever and ever and ever. It, yeah, please, that's fine with me. Because, you know what, we will analyze ourselves right back to a drink. You know, it, not drinking has a lot to do with Alcoholics Anonymous working. And somehow we seem to have skipped all that. You know, I don't care how much you want to drink, you don't drink. You can't drink. You are not good at drinking. No, no matter how many meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous you attend, you will be no better at drinking than you were when you got here. It doesn't matter. You don't drink. You don't drink. One of the things that used to go around in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it chapped me then and it still does, is you can always come back. No, by God, you can't. You can't always come back. We might have to bury you. So don't go out there drinking thinking, well, if I screw up this time, I can always come back. No, you can't. And it still breaks my heart when I think of how many people I loved in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that somebody ended up telling me, well, you know, he tried it one more time and he wrapped his car around the telephone pole. You know, or he fell into the swimming pool. Nobody got him in time, man. He drowned. You know, don't ever forget, no matter how much fun you have in AA and no matter how glorious your life becomes, you can die from alcoholism. You can die from alcoholism. Don't forget that. All right? And somehow we clouded up, even Dr. Bob told us, with all this Freudian BS, when the bottom line is get a sponsor who's going to sit you down and say, work these steps or get drunk. Because those are your options. Now, I did some time in a mental hospital. If you all haven't, praise God. That is not a picnic to go to a state hospital. I mean, there are scary things that go on there all the time. It is no place for anybody to go. Think about being sentenced the rest of your life to a place like that. Because if you pick up the drink, that's what you're asking for. That's what you're asking for. You know, it, 
It's not that complicated, people. We like to think we're complicated. It makes us more interesting than it. We can get into that stuff and amuse ourselves for days, whether we amuse anybody else or not. <laughs> but it's real simple. It was real simple, too. My sponsors taught me to work with others. It's wonderful to work with others. You know, if you've got about five years in the program and you get somebody that's brand new, you just go, thank God I'm not that sick anymore. You know, it is wonderful. And it is wonderful to see and to have them in your life to where you can see the light of life come back in their eyes. That's what is so wonderful. And the only reason you get to see that is because you're drunk. It's wonderful. It is absolutely wonderful. The marriage didn't work out. I came back to Atlanta. Oh, i got to tell you something. The whole reason for me to go to Hiawassee was to start that relationship with God. I believe that. That's the whole reason why I moved up there. Just past where we lived, there was a little eight-acre lake. Behind that lake is a beautiful, beautiful mountain. It's a very tucked away, kind of quiet place. And I was having a hard time with my marriage, and I was having a hard time staying sober, and I went to that little lake, and I prayed. And I, I prayed probably the first honest prayer I'd ever said since I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay, and I just told God that I didn't know if I could stay sober. And that I didn't, I didn't think I could go on. Because I'd never hurt sober, you know. And I told, him I, I told God I had to have some relief because I didn't want to get drunk again. And, um, you know, back then and still, um, there's moonshine up there. And, uh, and I knew where I could get a hold of it, you know. So I, I knew that drinking, even though it was a dry county, it was just as wet as Fulton is. So, you know, it was no big deal. Um, but I was serious in my prayer to him. And, and I was scared that I was going to drink again because I simply didn't know how to cope. And what happened there and what made it so nice was that as I sat there next to that lake looking at that mountain, everything became quiet and peaceful and still. And it was like my best friend was sitting next to me and he had put his hand on my shoulder and just said, you're going to be okay, kid. You're going to be okay. Now, I have never, ever doubted the presence of God since that moment. Never. I believe he is with me at all times. All I have to do is just call on him. I believe he is with me every time I'm in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I believe that. Now, I can't always say, see, there's a lot of things. When religion gets in this mind, I really get confused, you know. So I don't know what is right and wrong. I don't know if everything in the Bible is true. I don't know that. Okay, but here's what I do know. I do know that there has to be something out there that makes me smile when I see a baby. There has to be something out there that does that for me. I live out in the country now, up in the North Georgia mountains, and in my backyard, the young fawns will play. And I know when I see them jumping and kicking and I giggle, something makes me do that. That happiness makes me do that. Now, I know that when I look at my mom and I see love in her eyes, that warm on the inside has got to come from somewhere. No. So maybe it is not the Catholic God of my grandmother, but it is my God. Something makes me feel those things. Something. And so if that's all you can hold on to, hold on to that. Something makes you feel that. That doesn't happen by accident. You know, those basic joys that we have in life, something makes us feel it. And I attribute it to God. I attribute it to God. Came back to Atlanta. Um, I had known my husband uh, even before I left Atlanta. And uh, I didn't know that, that he was divorcing his wife, and he didn't know I was divorcing my husband, and there you go. Um, we moved in together, and we lived together for a year before we got married, and we had a wonderful life together, my Craig and I. And um, we started doing those things that people do in life, you know, that they taught us in Alcoholics Anonymous. We started doing those things like get a job and stick with it, and I did. And we bought a house, and that was incredible. I never, never, ever thought, ever, that I would own a home. I just never did. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, if they said, Judy, all we're going to give you is an efficiency with a small twin bed and a, and a cook plate to cook, that had been fine with me, honey. I'll take it. 
I'll take it. That's fine. That'll be heaven to me. You know, I'd have sold myself short, wouldn't I? You know, and I we had that house, and we had we had nice jobs, and we had those good things that come when you when you try and live right. We were trying to live right. You know. And it was wonderful. I was a member of the Biscayne Room, as was mentioned, and I sponsored a lot of people, and I still sponsor a lot of people because that's my life's blood. That is my life's blood. There is nothing more fun than picking on Joyce. You know, there is nothing more fun than telling Michelle to slow down a minute now. Wait just a second. Let's go back where we started. There is, it is wonder, and it is wonderful to be involved in somebody's life for five, ten, fifteen years to see these people grow up mature, get married, have a family, become a part of society, okay? Because that's what we're supposed to do here, too. We're supposed to become part of society. You know, I sometimes I'll go to meetings and I'll hear people talking about all those normal people out there. All those no- Let me tell you, those normal people have been cutting it for years, okay? I am part of those normal people now. I, I vote. I vote in every election. Every election. I can vote. <laughs> I, and I do it because that's part of being a citizen. That's part of being a member of society. I participate in community affairs when I can because that's part of being a member of society. I get along with my coworkers because that's part of what I learned here in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's part of being society. Now, I'm going to tell you that they're not all bad. You know, I have met some wonderful people outside of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I will also tell you I remember that I learned it here. I learned how to be a worker among workers. I learned how to be a friend. I learned how to say this is not about me, this is about you. What can I do to help? I learned that here. And that's what we learn in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have some very strong opinions about Alcoholics Anonymous. I like the way I was raised in Alcoholics Anonymous. I like the fact that they didn't let us talk or lead a meeting until we had six months sobriety. They didn't. They said, you're spreading the disease. You don't do it. You don't do it, and we didn't do it. I like the fact that they, in- they insisted that if you were going to go to a meeting, you cleaned up. You cleaned up after yourself. You don't spill your coffee and expect somebody else to pick up after you. You clean up after yourself. You know, we emptied ashtrays back then because we were all puffers. We just went from one right after another. You know, making coffee. We used to use the old coffee cups that you had to scrub out, and we used to do that. And that was part of what you did. You got to do that. That was, that was a privilege. That was not a demand. When you were able to lead a meeting, that was something of excitement. You were finally sober enough to lead a meeting. You know, it, it was incredible. And I, sometimes I miss that. Sponsors didn't put up with a whole lot, or at least the sponsors I had. Maybe you alls did, but mine didn't. You know, they read me like a book. And, and they told me those things that I would have to do in order to stay sober. Now, let me tell you, they never read the big book to me. If I wanted to find something in the big book, it was up to me to find it. It was up to me to read it until I found it, and that's the way I sponsor now. I will not tell people where it is in the big book. You read the book until you find it. No. I used to have one that she used to get so mad at me, but then I'd get home and on my voicemail she'd say, I found it, I found it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's something else to be said, you know, about, about sobriety and, and recovery, recovery, we recently went through a thing in my home group, I don't know if y'all go through it in yours, about whether or not you really are recovered. This just pops its ugly head up every now and again, doesn't it? Now, read your big book and it'll tell you about that. So were you 12 and 12. Okay, but here's, here's how it is for me. I call myself a recovered alcoholic because I am. And I'll tell you why I say that. I go to work every day. I pay my taxes. I pay my bills on time. I've got a good relationship with my family. I've got a good relationship with my sisters, my mother, my in-laws. Okay? I, my neighbors like to see me. All right? I have a good relationship within the community. Okay? I have the respect of my peers and the people that I work with. All right? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know where else to get recovered in there. How can I still say I am... I'm not recovered. I have recovered. You come to Alcoholics Anonymous to recover. You don't come here to stay sick. You come here to recover. 
this constant melodrama of, well, I'm still sick, I'm still sick. By God, I'm not sick anymore. And I've got proof. I am not sick. You know, now, does that mean I don't have anything to work on? Absolutely not. Every day of my life, every day of my life, I ask God to make me a better person today than I was yesterday. Every day. I want to be better. I want to be more honest. I want to be more truthful. I don't want to get mad. Those, I go to God about that. But I am not going to classify myself as sick because I'm not sick. Sick to me is the one that I brought here. That is sick. With the twisted ideas, with the no goals, with the thinking less of myself than I thought of anybody else. And I'm not sick anymore. And I'm... I am not sick anymore. And there's another one that goes around that I don't understand. Time doesn't matter. Like hell it doesn't. Yes, it does matter. Let me tell you something. If, what's the point if time doesn't matter? What is the point? I don't understand that. If I was as miserable in my 35th year of sobriety as I was in my first year, I'd have screwed up somewhere, people. It does matter. It does matter. And the reason why is you learn. You learn this too shall pass. You learn that, well, you know what? I've been through this before. You know? You learn. So, yes, time does matter. And, and there's no reason at all for anybody to be ashamed of the time they have in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was in a meeting one night. There was a guy in there, and he talked about his white chips, and he talked about them, and he talked about them, and he talked about them. Fifteen minutes, he talked about how many white chips he picked up in Alcoholics Anonymous. Made it a great big production, like everybody was supposed to feel sorry for him or whatever. I don't know. But I'd heard it out of this one, because he did it every meeting he went to. And I heard it out of this one about all I could stand, and I finally said, you know what, I picked up one white chip. And he said, well, aren't you something? Well, yeah, but still... <laughs> But, and only by the grace of God, don't think I don't forget that, I know that. Um, but still, here's the thing. You see, if, if he wants to talk about how many times he didn't make it in this program, don't you think I have the right to say I did? And I think those of us that, that have only come to Alcoholics Anonymous once, we don't want to say it because we think it's bragging. It's not bragging. It is not bragging. But you need to let the drunk who may not have another drunk left know that it can be done with one. It can be done with one. You don't have to go out and beat your head against that brick wall again and again and again. Thank you. I've had a, I've had a lot of challenges in sobriety and yeah, uh, Craig um, and I, uh, after several years, I guess we were married probably 10, 15 years, and, and his health was waning, and um, uh, we moved up to Ohio. His mother's health was also bad, and he had some concerns there, and, and things were not going well for us in Atlanta, so we moved up to Ohio where we could be closer to his family, and uh, his health took a turn for the worse there. And um, it just kept getting worse, people. And, and uh, he had my Craig played pro football, and in his third pro game, he broke his back, and he was to pay for that for the rest of his life. And what ended up happening is around that break, um, deterioration of the spine started, and and arthritis started, and it was limiting his capacity to for his body to function properly. And so we were up there uh, about nine years, and we went to see the doctor because he was having a hard time breathing. And the doctor said um, that the best that we could hope for is that it wouldn't get any worse. Um, but as time went on, it got worse. And it got to the point where he couldn't get dressed, and he couldn't move from one room to another without help because he just couldn't get his breath. And, and I took him to the hospital um, on Memorial Day weekend, of uh, 2000 and um, and he passed away six days later and uh, uh, that was uh, without a doubt the toughest thing I'd, I'd ever gone through sober um, we were married we were together believe it or not 25 years and uh, that's that's a long time by today's standards and, and surely a long time by Alcoholics Anonymous standards and uh, you know, I don't I don't want to brag on him a whole lot, but I was number four wife, so he didn't have a good track record either. And um, uh, and it was it, it, it was 
It was a wonderful, and I'm so, I was so blessed. I was so blessed to have that relationship. I was so blessed to have a good marriage and to be able to communicate with my husband and he with me. And that was nice. And, you know, when people were talking, uh, people were talking to me after uh, Craig passed away and they said, it's okay to be angry at God. You know, you can be angry at God. And, and I wasn't angry with God. Why would I be angry with God, you know? He took my beloved uh, when he could no longer function, when he was always in pain, when he couldn't get his breath. Why would I be angry with God? You know, God showed love and mercy like he always did, uh, you know. And I was grateful that I had him in my life for 25 years and we had a glorious life. And I did what I had been told to do and what I had told others to do. I stayed up north for a year until I could get things together, close the business down, sell the farmhouse, and come back home. And I'm going to tell you, I, if you all want snow, you're welcome to move to Ohio, but I am never crossing the Mason-Dixon line again, ever. <laughs> I bought a little house in L.A.J. sits on two acres. I did not want to go back to a big city, Craig, and I lived out in the country uh, in Ohio, and I fell in love with the peace and quiet, and I'm stuck way out there, in the country, and I love it. I love the peace and quiet. I love the fact that when I turn my lights off in my house at night, you can't see it, nothing. There's no shadows. It is night out there. My sister came up to see me. She said, my God, I didn't know it got this dark at night. <laughs> But it is wonderful. It is wonderful. And, and I enjoy that. And I go, of course, to the Gilmer Area group. And that is my home group now. For those of you who may remember or know, I was a member of uh, the Atlanta Biscayne Night Owl group for a while. And uh, the Night Owl group was kind of compiled of a bunch of people that had gotten kicked out of other groups. Is really what we <laughs> And we, it was the darndest mess I've ever seen of people, and we were one of the strongest groups in, uh, in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, with all due respect to Clarkston, of course, but we were, and it was a wonderful group, and it was a bunch of misfits that, that really had no place to go, and we were family. We were family. We hung around one another. We called one another. We had picnics together. We did everything together, and, uh, and we're still family. You know, i got a bunch of them here now, too, that are sitting there nodding their, their heads, you know, and... Uh, I was so touched when Diana got up to read because um, there's a difference. Now, those tears of joy that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I had a sponsor, Maggie. A lot of you knew Maggie. And she used to tell me that tears washed the window of the soul. And, uh, and I absolutely believe that. There's nothing wrong. There's some days I'll be driving to work just thinking about how good God has been to me. Just thinking about how rich my life is today. How fortunate I am that I can get up every day and go to work, you know. How fortunate I am that I can bathe and, and clean myself and clean my house. And, and how fortunate I am for that and how he has smiled on me. You know, and those tears will just come. They'll just come. And, you know, then you've got to stop and put mascara on because you're going to work. You know. But they are tears of joy and they are tears of gratitude, you know, because I have never forgotten where I came from. I have never forgotten where I came from. I know that when they told me, and I was engaged to a guy, because I used to do that a lot too, I was engaged to a guy and he told me one time, and he told me out of love, and honest to God, he told me out of love. He said, Judy, if you keep drinking the way that you're drinking and living, you'll never see age 25. I'm telling you, either somebody's going to kill you or you're going to kill yourself. And I laughed in his face, but I know now the truth that man spoke. I I never would have seen 25, you see. That's why now I don't have any problem telling you July 27th I'm going to be 60. Hell, baby, I'm glad. I'm glad, you know. I shouldn't be here. I know I shouldn't be here. You know and I know what happens to women like me. You know and I know what happens, you know. And to all of you, to all of you, because you've got to know on the inside how bad you felt about yourself, you know, how, poor, how poorly you thought of yourself. The things you wouldn't even do for yourself. You'd do it for somebody else, but you wouldn't do it for yourself, you know. And we learn to love ourselves here, you know. It absolutely, the first thing I did in Alcoholics Anonymous to help another human being, and I'll never forget it. There was a guy in the Biscayne room, and he was drying out, and he was going through that hot, cold stuff, you know, that you go through when you're drying out, and you're shaking, and you're sweating, and all of a sudden you're so cold you can't stand it, right? And I remember sitting, him, sitting there watching him, and he was shivering. And he just got through sweating. He was soaking wet, but he was shivering. And I went in the back room. Nobody else was there but me and him. And I got a blanket, and I wrapped it around his shoulders. And then I ran across the other side of the room and sat down again because I didn't want anybody seeing me being nice. You know, because I, I didn't want anybody to see that. But I remember I had nothing at all in mind to that man other than I just wanted to help him. And that was the best I could do. As little as it was, it was the best I could do. 
you know, because I, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I was like so many of us. I was so wrapped up in me, I couldn't see your pain. I couldn't see what you were going through because it was all about me, you know. And I absolutely love it now that I don't have any pain. I really don't have any pain in my life. I don't have anything to complain about. I don't have anything to bitch about. I don't have any of that bad stuff in my life. So see, that, what that allows me to do is look at you and say, what can I do to help you? How can I help your day-to-day? You know? And there are times when I'm sitting in that house and I'm by myself with my three cats. And the phone won't ring. And it'll go a couple of days and the phone won't ring. And I think, well, by God, there you go. After all I've done for them. Huh. And then for three days solid, every time you turn around, that phone's ringing. And it's just like, would you all give me a break, please? (laughs) We are who we are, aren't we? One thing that a lot of things that Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, has done everything good that there is in my life. Alcoholics Anonymous has done. But one of those things is that I have recognized who I am today. I recognize and I appreciate who I am today. And I want each of you to know that you've got your story. You've got those things that you can give other people that's going to make them feel better. You know, I know that perhaps I'm not as wealthy as some folks think I ought to be. I know that I have fallen in sobriety. You know, I was 32 years sober and I got fired from a job. Oh, can you believe it? You know, I know that. Uh, But you know what? It sure made me think. And I decided, you know what? I don't want a pressure job anymore. I don't want to have to worry about how are we going to make payroll and pay the employees insurance. I don't want that anymore. I can't deal with that anymore. I want to go in, do my 40 hours, and not be a boss to anybody. And that's exactly what God gave me, and I've never been happier. It's exactly what I needed. It's exactly what I needed. I know that I'm a little, that I sometimes can be a little crude and downright crass. I know that. I know that I'm sometimes short-tempered. I know that too. But I know that all of that is part of me. And I know that I'm working on all of that. Those things I don't like about myself, I work on. You know, and I accept them as part of who I am. I know that with my story, I should be dead. I've never forgotten that. And it's because of a loving God and the grace and caring of Alcoholics Anonymous that I can stand before you tonight and say very proudly, I am Judy Pierce and I'm a recovered alcoholic. Thank you all very much. <laughs>